Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here at prn.fm, Progressive Radio Network, Mondays at 10 a.m. New York time, but we're totally global, so you have to check what time it is in your part of the world. And you'll find our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. And today I wanted to talk about cultural what? References, foundation. What's one's culture? And uh, I teach. I teach at an art and architecture school. And, and so I usually have architecture students, but I'm teaching an interdisciplinary course. So that one has students from all over the institute They're in film, fashion, uh, graphic design, industrial design, painting, etc. So it's really great. Keeps me <laughs> keeps me young, right? Uh, and so something uh, came up. I've learned when trying to make references, not <clears throat> not to uh, refer to books, um, and I refer to movies, and that usually works with my architecture students. So I want to um, ref- refer to a dystopian worldview, right? I can refer to uh, the original Blade Runner. Most of my architecture students have seen it, but I started noticing that my art students uh, have not. Uh, and so I set up a little project, which I'll get to, <clears throat> in which I said there were three students who raised their hands. They, they were whatever, movie buffs. <clears throat> and I said, you three go over in the corner of the room and come up with a list of movies that we should all see. And so uh, I had no idea what they were going to do. My What I would do is say, what are the classic movies that would make one film literate? So, you know, you start with silent movies, maybe The Great Train Robbery by Edison is one of the first movies, and then go to The Great Silent Movies. You can decide about D.W. Griffith. Do you want to include Intolerance or Birth of a Nation? And then get to um, Metropolis, which, you know, you got to check this out. Somebody did a colorization of... Okay, so Metropolis is one of the great silent movies. Um, I think it's German. Who knows? It's silent. Uh, And it has... um, It's about uh, a a dual world. Uh, There's the upper world... In which is rich, frivolous people playing tennis or whatever. And then there's all the workers who are underground in hot, steamy conditions um, uh, being abused by their capitalist masters. And then there's a, um, a woman who's leading a peace movement and then some evil figure has created a robot 
who takes on the identity of that woman and tries to foment revolution, which is going to destroy the world for everybody. Um, and so it's a real adventure. And uh, so I just watched a lot. Oh, and it keeps getting more and more restored. They lost half of it over the decades, but they keep finding pieces, you know, some theater somewhere in Finland or something, you know, will have kept a reel, forgot to return it. And so they've been able to restore. I think it's pretty well restored by now. It's on TV occasionally. But somebody made this colorized version with dub sound. And it's a real hoot. I've only watched a little bit of it. But it is on YouTube, so look it up. But anyway, then one would go on and, and uh, you know, the first sound movie, which includes the jazz singer with Al Jolson. And then <coughs> the great... Um, Westerns, uh, Stagecoach, Shane, and High Noon, I would, you know, maybe Johnny Guitar, which has just come into list recently, I think. And then you go on, you know, and say, do you want to have Gone with the Wind and whatever. So this, this would make you film literate. Well, that's not what my students came up with. What they decided on is there were three of them and each one would pick one movie. And what they picked was Gattaca. So I'd seen that. Uh, director Andrew Nicole. And let's see, where's my... I went to... Uh, the world's not big enough. <laughs> I got chairs and a desk all covered with uh, printouts on... Uh, on these movies, and I'm not finding, let's see what we got here. Here we go. Gattaca, <laughs> according to Wikipedia, Gattaca is a 1997 American science fiction film written and directed by Andrew Nicole, N-I-C-C-O-L. It stars Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman. Oh, I don't remember it was Uma Thurman. How do you like that? With Jude Law, uh, Lauren Dean, Ernest Borgnine, Gore Vidal, and Alan Arkin. Wow. It's been so long since I've seen it. I don't even remember all those appearing in supporting roles. <clears throat> the film presents a biopunk vision of a future society. Well, in the future, according to this movie, uh, before uh, there are two kinds of children, natural, and but most are genetically selected. So before copulation, hang on, I got some of my notes here. Before copulation, uh, people will have their eggs and sperm um, engineered, selected, get rid of the bad genes, put in the good genes. And so the elite uh, are these people that are genetically modified to be elite. And there's this young man who's as good as anybody else, but his parents made love on the beach. <laughs> so he's a natural. He wants to go to space. He doesn't qualify because <clears throat> he's not one of these elite. And it's an adventure of, you know. And, of course, um, I'm thinking of Mel Gibson's Apocalypto, you know, which pits the uh, civilized 
uh, Mayans against the tribal people. And, of course, the tribal people win <laughs> in that little encounter. But then they all get done in by the Spanish. But anyway, um, uh, so that's Gattaca. Us familiar with it. It's a well-known movie. I think everybody who's at all into movies knows it. Although, interestingly, it's probably been rising up on, um, you know, people's lists uh, recently. Next movie they selected was Yee Y-I space Y-I, directed by Edward Yang, Y-A-N-G. Yee uh, which means in Chinese, one one, is a 2000 Taiwanese drama film written and directed by Edward Yang. The film's theme centers around the emotional struggles of an engineer named N.J. and played by Wu Nian Ying and three generations of his middle-class Taiwanese family who reside in Taipei. So it's a family drama. And um, it's uh, regarded as one of the great movies of all time. <laughs> I'd never heard of it. So interesting, it indicates something, and that is well, let me do one more, and then I'll go back to that. The third movie they selected was Paris, Texas, which is well-known, um, but I'd never heard of it. And so Yee Yee is available online. You can watch it on YouTube. Paris, Texas, I didn't look that hard, but there are excerpts from it. The opening's online. Interviews with the stars and directors are online. Paris, Texas is a 1984 road movie directed by Wim Wenders and starring Harry Dean Stanton, Dean Stockwell, Natasha Kinski, and Hunter Carson. Screenplay was written by L. M. Kit Carson and playwright Sam Shepard, while the distinctive musical score was composed by Rye Coder. The film was co was a co-production between companies in France and West Germany and shot in the United States by Robbie Mueller. Well, uh, the plot focuses on a vagabond named Travis Stanton who, after mysteriously wandering out of the desert <laughs> as a dissociative fugue, in a dissociative fugue, attempts to reunite with his brother and seven-year-old son. So it's a redemption movie and road trip, the father and son. So, uh, and that's uh, chosen by a lot of people as one of the great movies of all time. So then I looked up, you know, greatest movies, American Film Institute, Citizen Kane, Casablanca, The Godfather, Gone with the Wind, Lawrence of Arabia, Wizard of Oz, The Graduate, On the Waterfront, Schindler's List, Singing in the Rain. Well, that's a top 10. There are 50 on this uh, printout I just did. Maybe 100. Yeah, 100. Uh, so you can look that up and check off the ones you've seen. Then I looked up Sight and Sound, and I looked up... Um, so Wikipedia is a Sight and Sound. Bicycle Thief, Citizen Kane, Vertigo, Tokyo Story. Um, so 
Uh, one of the things going on is whatever we want to call it, uh, multiculturalism, open to other cultures, always been a big fan. As a uh, student of Buddhism and Taoism, studied Tai Chi with Qingming Chen, shamanism with uh, Michael Harner. So, yeah, you know, there are other cultures out there. And in fact, I've um, for many years taught a course in non-Western architecture looking at other cultures. And now, you know, they say it's like 10 or 20 percent. It looks like half of my students are Asian, <clears throat> a lot of them Chinese, maybe some Taiwanese and whatever. But they're going to come up with different lists. How do you like that? So uh, learning, always learning new things from my younger students and colleagues. Anyway, what I was going to talk about today was books, but I, <laughs> I got started on movies. And I was thinking, uh, as I go through, uh, you know, when, when I want to refer to dystopia and I mentioned <clears throat> Blade Runner or whatever, you know, or Memory and Time, and I might refer to uh, Groundhog Day. These are movies that uh, film students would all know, but my other students don't know these movies. They don't watch movies. They don't go to movies. They don't watch TV. They don't have a TV. So I, uh, I say to my students, what's your culture? And the response is, and I tried to figure it out, is social media. So I was thinking back on myself, and <clears throat> I started college in 1959. So late 50s, I think my culture was books. And <clears throat> my, my family was fairly literate, but you know, we weren't up on everything. I sort of missed the 50s and 60s. I wasn't aware of, um, of Norman Pothorens and commentary. Where that's where it was all going on, and I missed the whole thing. Although I did, um, I did subscribe in high school to the Village Voice, so I was aware of that world, and uh, I was aware of Hemingway and Norman Mailer. So Hemingway, I remember, I'm pretty sure it was um, the Old Man in the Sea, one of uh, Hemingway's last novels. And it was published in Life Magazine, the whole novel. That was when uh, Life Magazine did that kind of thing. I remember staying up all night into the morning reading it. And then my parents' circle of friends were all discussing, you know, has Hemingway lost it? Does Hemingway still have it? And I remember my mother saying, I think in the future, Franz Kafka will be more important than Hemingway. And in a way, that's true. She was right. Uh, I think, um, you know, we can talk about a Kafkaesque world more than we talk about Hemingway's machoism. But anyway, uh, and then I encountered Norman Mailer's advertisements for myself. And somehow it did not leave me. I read, I think, The Deer Park. And my, my mother read The Deer Park. I never read Naked in the Dead to this day. I got to see if it's on tape. <laughs> see if it's on audiobooks. 
But anyway, I think my culture and the culture generally in the 50s was books. And um, I was a little bit catching up on the classics. I remember reading Hemingway's, um, what was it? Uh, Anyway, a couple of Hemingway's novels. And then, boy, did uh, advertisements for myself blow me away. And it's Hemingway's grappling with the culture of his time, drugs, homosexuality, uh, jazz. Um, the his, One of his prominent essays is The White Negro, uh, The Hipster. Um, and I really missed out on something. I was getting a book. Um, well, the world that Hemingway longs for uh, pretty much happened in the late 60s, in what we call the 60s. And I uh, always wanted to interview Hemingway and ask him, you know, what do you think of, you know, is this the world you called for? What do you think of it? And I was getting a book autographed by him, and I should have asked, you know. I was online, you know, and I got my, I asked him to autograph um, <clears throat> the Deer Park for my mother. Uh, and he was very interested. He asked her name and asked about her. And because I said that was her favorite book, but I have favorite uh, mailer book. <clears throat> and um, I should have asked him at that point, would he tolerate an interview? But anyway, then comes the 60s. And I think, you know, the culture is foreign films. And Bergman, Wild Strawberries, Godard, Breathless, uh, Fellini, La Dolce Vita, uh, Antonioni, La Ventura. And everybody I knew had seen these movies. Everybody was talking about them. They were the culture. They were the touch point for communicating. And <clears throat> I remain fans of these movies to this day. You know, if... Um, Film Forum. I don't really follow Film Forum anymore, but if I happen to notice that they're that they're running uh, Dolce Vita, uh, I'll go see it. And I, I always see it twice. <laughs> Buy two tickets, and uh, <clears throat> uh, first time through, I read all the subtitles, and because it's in Italian, and uh, second time. I force myself to look up and not look at the subtitles so I can focus on the cinematography. And this time I know what everybody's saying because <laughs> I've seen the movie a dozen times, but also I just saw it reading the subtitles. So, you know, I know what everybody's saying and I can focus on the cinematography. And uh, what a movie. And I, uh, I have a reference to um, Roger Ebert's essay on the movie. And Ebert uh, says something that strikes me. He says, the, uh, he talks about how what a movie means changes as one grows older. And, you know, the first time... Uh, 
well, I'll think of myself, and then I'll get to Roger Ebert. Uh, first time I saw Dolce Vita was a year after it came out. It was first year in the United States. I think it was made and came out in Italy in 59, came to U.S. in 1960. And that's when I saw it. So it had a kind of, it was about the world of that time. The world that, I was going to school in Philadelphia. It wasn't Rome. <laughs> but I aspired. And, you know, a year later I was there. So um, as, a, as a summer, you know, student. But, and then, so it, it, the movie's fresh. It's about one's world of that time. And the way Roger Ebert put it, the first time I saw, uh, quoting Roger Ebert, first time I saw Adultra Vita, I wanted to be Marcello, you know, the uh, sad, dissolute, beautifully handsome hero. So the second time I saw it, I was Marcello. <laughs> he says, I was a, um, uh, a reporter for a Chicago newspaper. And the next time I saw it, I was doing uh, a scene-by-scene and, you know, analysis in a movie course. And then the next time I saw it, I, you know, uh, Mastrioni had just died and I felt sorry for Marcello. So these movies mean different things to us at different times, but, you know, they become touchstones when they become our culture when we first encounter them. Breathless. I'll go see Breathless any time that it's playing. And, you know, if if I hear there's a new print, I think the prints we get of uh, La Dolce Vita are not as fresh as they should be. I remember Walter Murch did a restoration and re-editing of Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, and I rushed off to film form. I didn't see the first showing, but I saw the second showing, you know, to see it before the, the print fades, before there are any scratches. Uh, and boy, those black and white movies, when they're done well, they're just incredible. Touch of evil, you know, the black shadows and all that. And we can now get a little bit of that on TV. You know, now that our, um, our flat screen TVs have really good blacks, you notice if you look at your touch screen TV when it's off, there's this big black hole in the living room <laughs> as opposed to the old-fashioned tube TVs, which were sort of a light gray. That light gray was the black. <laughs> that was, you know, that was as black as it as the black got. Um, but now we can get, we can really see black and white movies the way they're supposed to be seen on our flat screens. And they're big enough that we can now uh, sort of get the get the feel. So, and then Bergman's Wild Strawberries. Not that big a fan of Bergman, but. I remember writing about these movies in my uh, master's thesis on uh, theory and criticism that uh, Bergman is very psychoanalytic. So <laughs> Wild Strawberries opens with um, a dream. So Wild Strawberries is about an old man who he was an important doctor or something like that, and his uh, son is driving him to Stockholm to get a major award. 
I don't know if it's a Nobel Prize, but a major award. And the old man has always been very cold to his son, and his son has inherited that coldness, and his wife is going to leave him, the son's wife, because of that. And in the movie, uh, it opens with a dream. So the it's the old man's dream, and there's a surrealistic street scene. There's a clock in the street, and it has no hands. So that announces we are going to be free in time in this coming day. We're going to be able to travel back in time. And then there's a, um, a horse-drawn carriage with a coffin, and it's going up a hill, and the coffin slides out and smashes open. And as I recall, I haven't seen it in a long time, I think the head of the corpse is a pumpkin which smashes. So it says, we're going to explore the coming death of the old man who's having this dream. So this announces what's going to happen. And then in a series of, uh, they pick up hitchhikers, they go on a picnic on this road trip to Stockholm for the award. Uh, A series of things happen which take the old man back to his childhood and what happened in his growing up, what happened to make him so cold. So it's very uh, psychoanalytically diagrammatic, but, um, you know, a key very much of the 60s when we get into psychoanalysis and our movies have this kind of uh, profound depth. Uh, Well, just uh, a couple of years ago, my school played, um, I went to see Weekend. What a hoot! <laughs> it's, a, it's a couple that uh, go on a, they're going to their country place for the weekend. And they, as they drive along the road, it's a continuous traffic jam. There are burning cars on the side of the road. And uh, I, you know, my younger colleagues don't remember, but in the early 70s, that's what it was like, at least in New York. You know, I'd drive uh, out in New York, and there'd be hulks, hunks, whatever you call it, burned out cars on the side of the road, on the highway. Where my school, right across the street, there are burnt out cars that were there for years, uh, just sitting there. The city didn't tow them away. Uh, and so Weekend captures that with, uh, so some of my uh, radical younger uh, faculty colleagues like to believe that Weekend is a revolutionary tract. I think Godard <coughs> is satirizing the young revolutionaries who are kidnapping, killing people and reading tracks from Marx and stuff like that. Uh, anyway, uh, I think the um, culture of the late 50s, I don't know about earlier, was books. The culture of the 60s was movies. And then we came to even appreciate the, the American movies. You know, uh, we um, uh, a movie like High Noon, you know, which is considered the great Western. But that then recalled to us 
earlier uh, Westerns like Shane, like Horse Soldiers, like um, what's the John Wayne movie where he's looking for a white woman who had been kidnapped by the Indians, uh, The Searchers. So we look for these, uh, we'd look at these movies again from a 60s eye. And in the late 60s, it becomes music, uh, The Beatles and The Stones, and then, which come out of rock and roll, but then we get rock and we get, you know, The Doors and the great rock groups. And then uh, Bob Dylan, I remember uh, Bob Dylan, uh, I'm not good on dates, but I remember he had a, I think it was a motorcycle accident, and he was out of commission for a while, but his, some of his earlier recorded stuff kept coming out and kept going right up the charts, and he became this major cultural figure as recognized by, he got, I think, he got the Nobel Prize in Literature. How cool is that? So, uh, so what is it today? <laughs> and is it, is it really social media? I have to confess, I get up in the morning and we get, uh, we get three newspapers. I used to get the Wall Street Journal. I'm not getting it right now. But we get the New York Times, USA Today, New York Post, and the New York Daily News. And I used to flip through them. And I hardly look at them anymore. You know, I'm going through the people I follow on Twitter and Facebook. And so maybe I'm guilty. (laughs) And it's pretty discouraging. So let me go on to, um, let me go on to what I've been seeing on Facebook and more about our culture. But let's take a break and get caught up on some promos and I'll be right back. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll, the founder of the Progressive Radio Network. Today, we have more than 80 producers bringing forth the most progressive and most liberating information, the kind of information you do not regularly hear on any of the mainstream or alternative media. You can help us now. Up to this point, I have virtually supported the Progressive Reader Network, all of its expenses and payroll, myself. But we would like to expand our reach. We'd like to do far more. We'd like to be able to advertise on Facebook and let others know we exist. We are the number one Progressive Reader Network in the world. In fact, we have programs that are most listened to in all of Progressive Radio. But we could go a lot further. Our message could reach a lot more people, especially at a time when people are desperate for honest, objective insights on the important topical issues of our day. How can you help? It's simple. Go to prn.fm. Go to our main page. In the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a little button, Support Now. And then whatever you can contribute on a monthly basis will make a big difference. It will help get the message out. It will help inform more people, give them more choices. This is where you'll hear in the independent candidates and the people looking to challenge the corruption in government and the industries. But we need to get our reach out further. So please, 
whatever you can afford on a monthly basis. And there's some suggestions there, and it'll be automatic. All right, thank you very much for continuing to help us help you and the rest of the world on these important issues. Join the movement at prn.fm, your best source for progressive programming. Welcome back. This is John LaBelle. You're listening to Visionaries on PRN.FM every Monday at 10 a.m. And um, back shows at visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-N, B-E-A-N is nancy.com. And I'm talking, uh, <laughs> I'm talking about books, but I haven't gotten to the books yet. <laughs> I, lo- I love this digressionary technique. Um, I... Uh, you know, this kind of freeform radio was pioneered by Gene Shepard and I talking about one's culture. That was my culture, Gene Shepard. <laughs> my my school was overcrowded as the baby boom hit. And uh, <clears throat> so I, we were on two shifts and I was on the early shift. So it was really rough. I think Gene Shepard was on like 10 till midnight or something like that. And then Long John Nebel was on at midnight. <laughs> he was a great pioneer of interview talk radio. And Gene Shepard was freeform. He didn't have guests, freeform talk radio. One of my, um, one of the people I admired on BAI, and until recently he was on, he was on uh, PRN, on Progressive Radio Network, was Mike Fader. And he does freeform radio. And is he, are his uh, archives still available? So listen, go to um, visionaries.podbean.com and put in Mike Fader. And I just I can just listen to his shows anytime. And you, and there's this new thing we can do. We can binge, right? So you can listen to like three or four of the shows, uh, just like we binge on uh, the TV series. Anyway, I wanted to talk about a couple of books that I'm knee-deep in, and uh, uh, a couple weeks ago I was talking about books, and I didn't get to these, but the two, I think, really important books, and uh, uh, I just finished The Meritocracy Trap, How America's Foundational Myth Feeds Inequality, Dismantles the Middle Class, and Devours the Elite by Daniel Markovitz. Now, uh, before I go on, uh, I have a lot of I have a lot of admiration for, but some disagreements with this book. And let me recommend an antidote: Range: Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World by David Epstein. So, these two books <coughs> um, were in a world of massive inequality. And okay, what do you do about that? Uh, or, you know, first of all, wh- how, what does it mean? Why? How to come about? And uh, there's a book we're not allowed to read, which is Coming Apart 
by Murray because years ago he wrote a book about IQ and race. And uh, so to this day, we're not supposed to read his books. But <clears throat> Coming Apart's an excellent book. It, it's got, he made a point of not addressing race at all. Looks at white America and how it's coming apart. There are, you know, people who are in trouble. They are out of wedlock, children, drug addiction, uh, low incomes, um, uh, divorce, etc. And there are Americans that are experiencing um, intact marriages, high incomes, elite college educations, uh, high power jobs. And what happened? What's the what's the whatever sociological and cultural difference between these two groups. And the meritocracy trap picks up on that theme. And the first thing we have to observe is that um, he's, he says, yes, there are rich who are rent seekers. They're rich who are evil people. Uh, let's just pick on bankers. <laughs> uh, there are people who are rich who didn't do anything to deserve the richness or, or acquired it through the abuse of the system. But most of the people who are well-to-do uh, worked really hard, um, like 80-hour weeks. And so it describes a phenomena of, you know, it's a cycle, so you can jump in anywhere. But people have kids. And the people are well-to-do. We'll see why. And first thing is their kids are going to, you know, <laughs> I mean, they apply to a half a dozen preschools and our their lives are shattered if the kid doesn't get in. You know, then they have to go. You have to go to the right preschool. Then you have to go to the right kindergarten. Then you have to go to the right, uh, you know, then you have to go to Dalton, <laughs> Then you have to go to an Ivy, but not just any. I don't think Cornell counts. <laughs> you have to go to Harvard, Princeton, or Yale. I went to Penn. <laughs> I don't know if that counts. <laughs> then you have to go to MBA at Wharton, Harvard, or Stanford, or law school at one of those. And uh, then you get a job at McKinsey, and you work 80 hours a week. And then you start giving your kid all these um, leg ups, you know, the piano lessons, the violin lessons, the, the trips around the world, the computer coding camps, the, all this stuff, these people. Now, should these people not send their kid to computer coding camp if they can afford it? Um, what are they doing wrong? So uh, Markovitz <coughs> is not being, is not, it is not about people who got rich by, um, you know, fraudulent mortgages. It's about people who work 80-hour weeks, who train like hell, who get these incredible skills. These skills, very few people have them. They're really valuable. Think about it. Uh, he doesn't give this example, but it really struck me when I was reading the book. A couple of years ago, Something happened to Google Translate. So um, to this day, you can use Apple. I think they still haven't gotten it together, their little widget for translating. 
So take uh, a paragraph in English, use Apple, translate, translate into Chinese, translate it back into English, since we don't know Chinese, right? Uh, and you get gibberish. And then if you spend an hour, you can fix it. <laughs> Good enough to email somebody. But if you use Google Translate, take a paragraph in English, translate into Chinese, translate it back to English, it's perfect. I mean, one or two words will be different, but they're words that have the same meaning. Um, and, uh, you know, it comes back on the level of poetry. It's, it works. How'd they do that? Well, it's uh, called neural nets, which let's talk about that in some future show. But a group of five programmers sat down and did it. And they're doing other languages. They probably have done a half a dozen languages now in this new neural net translation thing. It's really complicated. It involves two things. One is a huge amount of data, which Google has <laughs> because they're tracking everything we do. And, uh, and two is this very high-power form of software called neural nets, which interestingly, requires massive amount of computing power and actually whole data centers filled with, it's not the CPU anymore, it's the, it's the graphics chip that's used in neural nets. And now they're making custom neural net chips. Really powerful stuff, which Google can afford. So, but here's the thing. These five programmers did it. Five engineers did this. They worked around, you know, these are the kind of people who have sleeping bags under their desks and live on pizza and Coke. And forget Diet Coke because it doesn't have enough sugar for the energy they need. And, and they work 80 hours a week, uh, maybe more, but they're sleeping under their desk. That's what it takes to do this kind of thing, to, to create this unbelievable thing, this new form of translation. Well... If you're going to hire engineers, do you want to hire 50 mediocre engineers who might or might not eventually get there? Or they did it in like four months. <clears throat> you want to hire five engineers who will put four months into this, and these are probably the only five people in the world who could have done it. You know, Google really hires top people. Remember when Google was getting started, they took a giant billboard outside of um, Silicon Valley on the highway, and it had this unbelievably difficult equation on it. <laughs> it says, if you can solve this equation, email your solution and we'll interview you, <laughs> you know, for an engineering job. I mean, that's the kind of world that's out there, and we get these products. You know, we get things like an iPhone. I mean, my students have grown up with uh, smartphones, so it's no big deal for them. But think about it. There were phones that could get on the Internet before the iPhone, and they were unbelievably slow. And Apple goes to AT&T and says, we're going to make a phone that's got a web browser on it. I mean, think of the amount of data the phone company has to deliver for one person. Uh, who's who's using an iPhone w uh, with a browser. But this, we're going to sell 20 million of these in the first week. 
uh, and we want you, AT&T, to be able to handle the traffic. The deal was AT&T would get an exclusive. They would be the only, if you got an iPhone the first two years, it had to be AT&T, Verizon. <coughs> it didn't have iPhones. But, um, uh, and so AT&T gets an exclusive, but they have to deliver the capacity. How'd they do that? And it wasn't building out a thousand-fold more terminal stations, towers. It was upping the, upping the capacity of what they already had. One of the things they did was uh, all that fiber was put in the ground before the, the 2000.com uh, crash. And it was there. But that was nowhere near what they needed by a factor of 1,000. But then they discovered they could put 1,000 different wavelengths of light going through that uh, fiber optic and have 1,000 times more capacity. Light does not interfere with itself. Uh, so you can put 1,000 different wavelengths and you just up your capacity 1,000-fold. It doesn't interfere with itself. Well... Think of the engineers working around the clock to put that in place in time for Apple's launch of the iPhone, the original iPhone, which was pretty slow. <laughs> Being in a, I waited to the iPhone three, uh, and because I'm not, you know, I was happy with my little flip Motorola, but that wouldn't work anymore. Um, so I said, okay, if I'm getting a new phone, I might as well get an iPhone. <laughs> but I remember being in a restaurant, you know, oh, look that up five minutes later. Is it there yet? <laughs> I know it's still loading. <laughs> and so now G4 is pretty fast and G5 apparently is going to be much faster. But think of the engineering talent you need to do that. And uh, but but whether that's in law or software engineering or uh, hardware engineering or computer science or whatever um, people are training for. So the meritocracy trap is about those kinds of people and why they make a lot of money uh, and how they see to it that their children enter into that world, get the training. One slip, you know, you don't get into kindergarten, the right kindergarten, that your life is over. <laughs> You see that in TV shows uh, and people uh, hyping that. So I'm going to talk more about that in future shows. It's an interesting phenomena. But then what happens is the, the example he gives I don't fully agree with is you get these people who are super smart and they engineer um, collateral, what, collateral derivatives or whatever, that will package um, that will package mortgages, and they're very smart. They work hard. They get high pay, but then the loan officer who used to um, judge whether or not you're a good risk for a mortgage no longer does that. They just fill in the form, and the computer algorithm makes a decision. So that person can now be a lowly clerk. They don't have to be very talented, and they're low paid. So now we've got the middle-paid people who would be loan officers who would be making the decision, should we give this person a loan? Are they a good risk? Is gone. 
It's either the bank clerk who just checks off the boxes and the computer makes a decision or the high-power executive who creates the uh, collateralized derivatives or whatever the hell they are. Well, given uh, and they get very high pay. And so it's squeezing out the middle class. Well, this um, talks, this book, uh, Markovitz, says this low-paid clerk is not having a happy life, but the merit, the meritorious person at the top isn't either. They're working 80-hour weeks. <laughs> when, you, when you read about how top law firms work, it's really rough stuff. Uh, you know, they have to really pump out the billable hours. And he's got a lot of statistics in the book that a partner in a top law firm, you know, 40 years ago averaged uh, X hours a month, and now it's, you know, twice that. Uh, and uh, they make a lot of money, but it's a rough life. So <clears throat> what's it doing to our society? Um, now, uh, before we sign out, which we'll do in a minute, uh, let me just point out another book, Range, Why Journalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And this is a book about um, a whole different world. I'm going to quote something not from this book by Adam Grant, in which he refers to, uh, in an editorial, in an op-ed in the New York Times a while back, he referred to a, um, um, there's an excerpt from a book that he had. If you want to look it up, it's titled, How to Raise a Creative Child, Step One, Back Off. <laughs> it's a really great little article. But it's got a paragraph toward the end on comparing Nobel Prize winning scientists to their successful colleagues who did not win Nobel Prizes and finds that the Nobel Prize winner is like 20 times more, anywhere from two to 20 times more likely to um, do amateur acting, play a musical instrument, uh, paint on the weekends, travel to other countries, uh, speak another language. So the book is about how creativity is fostered by not just drilling down deep in one specialty, but in having a wide range of um, a wide range of interests. So it kind of contradicts uh, the meritocracy. So I'm thinking of putting a little reading group together at my school to discuss uh, both these books. So listen, tune in again next week. We'll continue this discussion. This is John Lobel. You've been listening to Visionaries. You'll find us every Monday on prn.fm, Progressive Radio Network. And our back shows are on visionaries.podbean.com. See you all next week. <laughs>